The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Jane Brox, is the author of four books, including Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light, which was named one of the top 10 nonfiction books uh, of, of 2010 by Time Magazine. She's received the New England Book Award for nonfiction, and her essays have appeared in many anthologies, including Best American Essays, the Norton Book of Nature Writing, the Pushcart Prize Anthology, and she's been awarded grants from the Guggenheim Foundation, National Endowment of the Arts, Massachusetts Cultural Council, and the Maine Arts Commission. Jane, it just goes on and on. Her newest book is Silence, a social history of one of the least understood elements of our lives. A review of Silence appears in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Jane Brox, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm really happy that you're here. I'm very interested in silence, but you made me think about it in a completely different way. So I'm just going to jump in because one of the, I don't know if the word is shocking, but one of the most startling parts of the your analysis of silence is this connection or a link or a juxtaposition in the book anyway, between the monastery and the penitentiary. So let's start with that. Explore that with us. Okay. Well, maybe I should tell you how I came to write the book, which explains the juxtaposition of these two um, architectural um, designs for silence is you know, I, I visited a, a monastery in France in 2001 and was so stunned by the silence I encountered there that I wanted to write about it. But I couldn't find a way in that hadn't already been explored by other people. And so I set aside the idea and wrote two other books in the meantime. But then I had the chance to visit Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, which now exists as a kind of stabilized ruin. It was built in 1829, it was the first instance of use of silent and solitary confinement um, as, a, as a means of hoping the prisoners would find redemption. It was based on the idea of the monastic cell. And the minute, I mean, in the hour I walked through there, the first hour I walked through there, I immediately saw how a book 
could oscillate between these two, the imposed and the chosen silence, and how maybe an exploration of these two elements of silence would enrich both of them. So, so why, why do you think, I mean, I get the fact that they borrowed from the monastic ideal, mm-hmm. but why do you think they thought silence was going to change behavior, not just redeeming your soul in some sense, but what were they thinking? I, I asked myself that many times. Well, Benjamin Rush, who was a founding father and who originated this idea, I, I think he was... Um, he, they were searching for an alternative to the blood punishment. So uh, a new kind of criminal justice, I think, was foremost in the conversation in Philadelphia at the end of the 18th century. But I, I think, um, you know, he approached it with a kind of idealism and naivete to not really see the risks in exposing people who were unprepared to encounter silence with vast amounts of silence. Right. And we think of silence in, in the penitentiary as punishment, not as a, you know, a redemptive act. But, but I want to I actually share a story. My dad was a traveling salesman. And when mm-hmm. I was in elementary school, during school breaks, I would go on the road with him. And it was never overnight, but it was you know, driving around parts of New England where he was selling janitorial supplies. And one of the places we always visited was the state prison. And every time we went there, the guards would take me and lock me in solitary confinement. They'd put me in this little tiny room, and there was just a little slat window, which they closed. And they left me there while my dad, you know, talked to the the manager of the uh, janitorial department and, you know, made all whatever business they were going to do together. And I'm just sitting there in solitary. And they thought it was sort of, uh, oh, I don't know a fun thing to see what, what I would do, but I loved it in there. I don't remember it being necessarily silent, but I, re- I loved being alone. There was nobody I had to talk to, nobody I had to impress. I was all by myself, absolutely quiet. And I thought it was the most comforting, safe place I'd ever been. So I credit that with my love for contemplative spaces and silence now, going on retreats and things like that. Have you ever sat in, in solitary confinement? I've never sat in a, in a solitary cell like that before. But, you know, it's interesting to think about. I mean, this, a solitary cell would not be in size or in the quality of the light very different from a monastic cell. Yeah. And you being led there by people who meant you no harm and being left there for a short amount of time probably did not feel threatened by it at all. So in your instance, it became a place for contemplation and um, where you could enjoy the silence. That, what an interesting story. I know. It's, it sounds like <laughs> abuse, but and maybe, and maybe it was. I don't know. But, you know, I know, I know lots of people who have a fear of silence. A lot of people that I've talked to say, no, no, that just freaks me out. I, I, I got to talk to somebody. I've got to see somebody. You know, if I'm, if I'm not seen and heard, I don't exist. And, you know, yeah. my thing was just the opposite. I got the sense from your book, though, that you have a similar love of silence. 
I do. I mean, as I, I could sit in si- silence all day. I mean, I am a writer. And so most of the day I, I is spent in, in solitude and in silence as I work. And, you know, there's nothing I like better than just to walk by myself out in the woods or along the beach. But the interesting thing uh, about writing this book for me was how complex silence became to me. I mean, there are silence is many things, and I I would not want to define it because it's so many things. But I wonder if um, silence contains all these potentialities. It contains both its negative and positive attributes at all times. And, you know, I've experienced times where I've been, one day I've been perfectly content in silence and solitude, and the next day it turns on me and I get a little bit uneasy or anxious or just want to get away from it. Well, you know, that makes sense. I know when you, people who go on retreats uh, will often say to me that the first couple of days, first three days maybe, uh, is really difficult. I mean, the retreats that I go on like that are both uh, silent and also there's no eye contact. So... I've had people say the first three days is just just awful. And then there's something happens, you know, as you, as you move into the fourth day, and then there's just a, a settling in to the mm-hmm. silence. And, and it's, it's, more, it's more comforting. I don't know if you're familiar with Father Thomas Keating, but yes. uh, he and I have been, well, he's just recently deceased, but he and I have been uh, colleagues, friends. He's been my teacher since 1984. And I, fascinated. I mean, I have a romanticized view of monastic life. I mean, I, he's, he's gone out of his way to show me that I am really just not dealing with the true monast- uh, monastic experience. But I asked him once, because he was, he was in the monastery when you were not allowed to speak. This is pre-Vatican II. And I, so I said, isn't that delightful that you don't have to engage in all this conversation? And he looked at me in this very curious way, like, you, know, you just don't get it. And he said that they would walk around with chalkboards around their necks, little chalkboards, and they learned to write very quickly upside down. And so when they were passing someone in the hall, they would say horrible things to one another and then immediately erase it so that, you know, the, the senior monks wouldn't see what was going on. So there, he said, there's lots of ways of not being silent, even when you're in silence. That's all. That's true. That's true. And, you know, one of the most interesting things I read was an article by a Dominican nun who was writing right around the time of Vatican II, where I think there must have been a lot of conversation about bringing speech into the um, monasteries. And she was arguing for conversation at meals and said that, in fact, it probably takes much more discipline to have real human conversation during meals than it does to be silent during meals. Wow. So, and there's a way in which she's right. I mean, there's a, there's at times silence can be the easy way out for that. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and, and that it would be much more difficult to sit with people and, you know, not chit chat or, you know, have small talk, but just have real human conversation, which takes a lot of attention and a lot of listening to the silence. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I was well. You, it makes me think of this ashram that I've been to several times, where meals are silent, but the first 
part of the meal, there's someone reading teachings from the guru and mm-hmm. or from sacred texts. And, and you see something like that sometimes in Christian monasteries too, where they do scriptural readings while while you're eating. But the very thing that I like about the silence is the fact that you avoid small talk. And I think you're absolutely right. What a challenge to just have deliberative speech. No no gossip. Well, if I can't gossip, there's nothing left to say. But you know, no no small talk, just talking about what matters. Uh, I mean that's that's a, a real a real challenge. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26 at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Let, let me ask you about, since we're on the topic of Catholic monks, uh, you've got this amazing chapter about Thomas Merton's Silence and the World. I, mm-hmm. I found that very moving. I, I've spent uh, several hours at different occasions uh, sitting by his grave, because I live just a few hours from uh, Gethsemane Monastery in Louisville, Kentucky. So I would go and visit his grave. Tell us a little bit about what you found with Thomas Merton and, and why you put him in the book, why that spoke to you. Well, you know, when I began the book, I've been reading Thomas Merton for 40 years at this point, but I had not intended for him to have a central part in the book. But as I went back over what I had read of his previously and then read more, especially his diaries and letters, I understood that his voice was perfect for this book in the way that he confronted um, 20th century silence in all its complexities. And one of the most interesting things to me was um, uh, came out in his diaries of the 50s and 60s, where he's confronting this um, nuclear war, civil rights, um, the Cold War. And, you know, what is his duty? He was a very particular monk. He had a voice in the world through his writing. People listened to him. He had contacts all over the world. So I think the choice for him was very particular. But he, um, you know, he had this huge struggle with silence or speech. Do I, you know, say something against nuclear war in particular? And I found his confrontation with that and his struggles with the church and how he um, craftily got around some of that to be just such a such an amplification of you know, silence in the modern world, because there is this other aspect of our duty to speak out. Right, right. Here's a guy who's, I mean, his whole life seems to be a struggle between at least these two forces, like, yeah. like as you were just saying, and, and not just silence and, and writing and silence and speech, but celibacy and fully realized sexuality. So yeah, he's well, got a lot of struggles going on. Yeah, and I know he had he had a relationship with a woman in the last years of his life, um, and it was you know I chose not to go down that road in the book because that opens up another fifty or seventy five pages that weren't particularly to the point of the book. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'd actually like to talk to her yeah. <laughs> and see yeah. you know what's it like going out with a monk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, yeah. he didn't talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think he did. Oh, I think. Okay. <laughs> I think. I think Thomas Merton was a big talker. I, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, he was always looking for more silence. Always looking for more silence. But I often wonder, uh, would he have been content as an ordinary monk? You know, without that contact with the world, he seemed so much. Um, he seemed to also feed so much on dialogue and and a kind of um, uh, you know of ideas of, of being in the real intellectual world beyond the monastery gates and um, we'll never know but you wonder how would he have lived as a as an obscure monk right right so yeah. let me let me if we haven't gotten off the rails already let me uh, see you know how far off the beaten path we can go with this because I'm reading the book and you know the monastery and the penitentiary and the voluntary silence of the monastery and the imposed silence of the penitentiary made me think of Morita therapy. I don't Are you familiar with that? I am not. Okay. So very, this is not, I'm not going to do justice to it, but very quickly, here's how it works. So Morita is a guy's name is Shoma Morita. He was a psychiatrist and he developed this therapy that was named after him. And it's a hospital-based therapy. It's for neuro- neuroses. And it's a four-week program, as I remember it. The first week, it's absolute bed rest and no contact with anybody. No doctors, no nothing. And you can't get out of bed except to eat and go to the bathroom. Then, according to his theory, if there's no one to talk to, then you're forced to listen to your own madness. And and after a week, he says, you got it. You're going to go stir crazy. So the second week... You do light occupational therapy around the hospital, but again, no conversation, no contact. They just give you, you know, clean up this, these rooms or whatever they tell you to do. Third week is the same thing, except now your labor is more intense if you're working in the garden or something like that. By the fourth week, it's about reintegrating into the world. It's like a three week retreat. But the theory is back to what, to what you were saying with Benjamin Rush, that, just as he thought there might be something palliative about silence, curative about silence, transformative about silence, Marita seems to be saying something similar, that at the end of, of three weeks, you are so bored with your inner chatter that you're ready to be a, a less crazy person, a less neurotic person. And then you go into you know, the rest of the therapy. And so my question is, whether it's the monastery, whether it's a Merida therapy hospital, that, has no, that doesn't necessarily stop the inner noise. And it's the inner noise that is probably the greater problem than the outer chatter, or the inner chatter that's the greater problem than the outer, the outer conversation. Well, I think, you know, I don't know if this answers your question or not. But what I was thinking of as you were relating this story is the way in which the confinement of the penitentiary differed for different people. There were people in penitentiaries who found a way to sort of occupy that inner silence, occupy the silence with, um, you know, memorizing poet, writing poetry in their head or remembering literature that they um, had read years ago, Eugenia Ginsburg, who was in the um, caught up in Stalin's purges, is an example of that. And so I think, you know, if 
someone's mind is furnished to occupy the silence, it's one thing. If someone is totally unprepared to occupy that silence, it's another thing. Wow, that that makes a lot of sense. You brought up Eugenia Ginsburg, so I want to end with that. I was, I, I didn't know who she was. This is the first I had uh, read about her. So tell us a little bit about her, and we'll use that to bring our conversation to a close. Well, Eugenia Ginsburg um, taught um, literature at a, a Soviet university, and she was caught up in Stalin's purges in the middle of the 20th century and was confined to solitary confinement for, I think, 10 years before she was sent off to Siberia. And when she finally returned from Siberia to her life, she wrote her memoir, Journey into the Whirlwind, about her time in solitary confinement. And she talked about how she managed to survive through occupying her mind, both by writing poetry. In fact, in a way, it was like Merton, a monastic cell for her in the way in which she could find some kind of inner richness. She recalled literature in a way she hadn't for years. She could contemplate readings that she had read 20 years ago and recalled them with complete clarity. But I think she had a very special mind and a very disciplined mind when she was put in a dark cell as extra punishment. She realized she had to, to keep her sanity. She had to keep track of time. And she did that by rending her shirt every time she was brought a meal so that she could keep track of the days. You know, it's, it, you know, it, given that absolute freedom, just any semblance of order was important for her. But her book is absolutely fascinating, Journey into the Whirlwind, and I'd recommend it to anyone. It's that, it's that, con- in the darkened cell, I mean, I, I read that and I thought, oh my God, that would freak me out. If I didn't know if it was day or night, I didn't know how long I'd been in there. Uh, I, I've spent time in uh, sensory deprivation tanks where there's absolute silence, no, no, no sensory, sensory input at all. And I just start to hallucinate. And it's, you know, it's safe, it's fine, it's interesting. But I think I would come out insane if I was there for, you know, days, weeks, or, or years. So last question to sort of really wrap this up. If people are interested in silence, would you recommend, uh, and I don't want to make it a yes or no question, but would you recommend people go on a, I don't know, three-day silent retreat, seven-day silent retreat? Would you advocate for silence in some way? Oh, I would. If you're at all curious, I, I, I would. And I would also, you know, prepare. If I, if I were in doing that, I would prepare myself for it just by maybe reading and thinking ahead to what the experience might be and then and and go go there with an open mind and see what happens <laughs> and confronting silence it's, it's a i i mean it, it can be i think a life-changing experience yeah i think i think so too and with that in mind we're gonna have to go silent <laughs> our guest today jane brox is the author of silence a social history of one of the least understood elements of our lives. A review of silence appears in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Jane Brox, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Well, thank you, Rami. It was, it was really a pleasure. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. 
If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality Health's website, where I now write a bi-weekly column called Roadside Musings. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our executive producer is Ben Nussbaum. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.